You are listening to the 415 Stories, where we are having fireside chats with amazing founders and venture capitalists from San Francisco and Silicon Valley. Enjoy the episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this amazing episode of Four and Five Stories. I'm your host Taha. Today, I'm with Jason Calcanius, angel investor, serial entrepreneur, and a podcast legend. Welcome to Pod, Jason. Thanks for having me. I'm eating my Girl Scout cookies as we speak. <laughs> Great. I love this time of year when Girl Scout cookies are everywhere. So you know we have so much in common. Both of our mothers are nurses. Oh, your mom's a nurse. Yeah. Very cool. And. You were fixing laser printers when you were younger, and、yeah. I had a printer startup.、Mm. You both write, and both now both podcast. Look at us! Yeah, who'd have thought、great. it? So we have limited time, but、uh, I think a huge majority of our listeners knows who you are. But if someone has successfully managed to be not heard about you, yeah,、um, you can Google him,、uh, Jason Calcanis now and see the amazing work he's done over the decades. So. My first question、yeah. is:、uh, We are in roaring twenties right now, and I think lots of things will change、uh, in tech scene. So, what's your prediction about two thousand twenties in terms of valuations, new trends, maybe next Ubers or Airbnbs, etc.? Yeah. So, thanks for having me on the pod.、Uh, you know, the twenties.、Uh, we're going into essentially the second decade of an incredible bull run. The stock market has been straight up and to the right since 2008, when the great financial crisis happened, the Great Recession, and it's the longest bull run of our lifetimes. And that would lead people to believe that at any point in time, we could have a giant recession, and a recession would be an over 20% pullback in the market. So, if the market's at 29,000 right now, the Dow. You know, pulling back twenty percent would be going to twenty-three thousand or something like that, right? Six that minus six thousand or so, and and so that would be survivable. But a forty or fifty percent pullback back down to fifteen or twenty thousand, you'd be talking about a large number of affluent people losing a third of their net worth if they're largely in the stock market. And it turns out a lot of these assets seem to be correlated now. So there was this theory that there would be assets wouldn't be correlated, but as we've seen, everything's going up or everything goes down sometimes, and.、Um, Startups tend to be、um, counter to the public markets in some ways, in that, but not perfectly. Because right now we see all valuations going up as a function of the stock market going up, as a function of enthusiasm going up. But if you were to break that down and pause for a second, what you would find is we're paying very high prices for startups at the early stage right now. Typically,、uh, I would say companies coming out of our accelerator six to ten million dollars. Uh, is their valuation, and sometimes a little higher, but generally seven eight would be probably the median、uh, or the mean. Both the previous era when it was two thousand eight two thousand nine, the average startup valuation four or five million, so it was fifty percent or a hundred percent less, right? Half the price,、uh, third off. So why does that matter? It doesn't. If you hit a giant home run like Uber or Facebook, you still would have made a lot of cash. However, the reason it matters is because you could make two bets for one. So back in the day, I invested in Uber and Thumbtack and Datastacks and some other companies, all for fifteen million dollars combined, right? And now people are going to Y Combinator Demo Day, and a bunch of dentists are putting a hundred k. Into a company at fifteen million dollars that has no revenue and has only been in market for two or three months. Yeah, so you do have this weird 
you know, high valuations. Um, and that means people can't take as many swings at bat, which means their portfolios are going to be screwed by the, I predict, um, that they're going to have a lot of upside down portfolios of people who invested in too few startups at too high a price. So pausing that, um, I think the twenties have, there's a group of people who believe we're going to have a down cycle, uh, in the twenties. That would make sense because if we don't, then we would be on a two decade long bull market. That doesn't mean that the bull market can't happen. Like anybody who's watched a roulette wheel, and if you were betting red or black, you could say, look for a roulette wheel with five reds, six reds, seven reds, eight reds, and then bet black. And you would fool yourself into thinking there's a greater chance of a black, but the odds are still the same, 50-50. So there's a possibility that we will go, can this bull run will continue or it could go sideways, right? We had Japan go sideways for a decade. So that's the big public markets. Um, the thing that's not stopping, um, I think the two overwhelming trends are more startups being started globally, um, so more experiments are occurring. The more experiments that occur, the greater the chance of an outlier. So let me say that again. The more experiments you run, the greater the chance you're going to have an outsized company emerge. So if we started, you know, let's just say a thousand startups a year in the 90s were funded and 10,000 are being funded now, the chances of hitting an Amazon, a Google, or a Facebook should be, just based on math, 10x. And if half the companies were Fugazi, you know, pipe dreams by people who are just not qualified, it would still be 5x. And I think that's what we're seeing in Silicon Valley, the number of big companies, the number of billion dollar outcomes, the number of companies with a billion in revenue, it's just gone bonkers. And why is that? Because there's more experiments and because company and there's more capital to fund those experiments. The experiments are cheaper, so there's more of them. The funding has increased, so there's more funding for the winning experiments. And then, um, you know, I think finally the big trend is globalization. And we talked about globalization when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s. It was a big question. Do we have globalization or not? Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? And now we're seeing a retreat to nationalism, closing the borders, you know, um, and putting embargoes and, and tariffs on stuff. It turns out globalization is responsible for the uh, acceleration in the in these exits and the, and the size and scope of them. If you didn't have Google being able to go around the world and win the number one search engine in all but four markets, um, Korea, Taiwan, Russia, China, Japan. So maybe five markets they didn't win in. Um, they took second place in those <laughs> markets or in China, they're not allowed. So, uh, you know, in the four markets they didn't win in, I think they took second or third place. So, you know, it's um, it's that. And then you saw Facebook do it. So Instagram do it. You saw Airbnb do it. You've seen Uber do it. Lyft didn't do it. My choice. Cowards. Uh, I'm sorry. I mean, uh, choice. Um <laughs> So that's the big drivers, this globalization. If you see startups get two, three, two or three out of every four dollars comes internationally. Great. So you're saying that you'll be the greatest investor in the history of Silicon Valley. That is a goal. That is a goal. Yeah. Not a dream. That's well, a focus goal. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, we could debate what's a dream and what's a goal. I, I tend to try to make my goals closer to dreams. Mm -hmm. I think that's pretty good alignment, actually. I never thought about it, but if 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 you're going to set a goal, why not make it a dream outcome? Like it was always my dream to be rich and powerful. There you go. Influential. Yeah. And someday I'll get there. <laughs> so, for now, the structure between your ventures are pretty strong, like your podcast, content business, then founder university, 
launch incubator and finally your syndicate. So I wonder if you are planning to add a new venture or a channel to your process to become the greatest investor and like in terms of deal flaws and finding those gems yes. uh, you're looking for. Yeah. The answer to your question is yes, we're going to constantly add new products. And by constantly, I mean every six months to 12 months mm -hmm. to our what process. Kind of products? Well, here's the master plan. Um, and keep it between us because I don't want people to get tipped off. All right. But there's a giant funnel. And at the top of the funnel is a podcast called This Week in Startups. And uh, that had 25 million listens last year and did seven low seven figures in revenue. We did 130 episodes. On that podcast of the 130 episodes, probably, I don't know, 10 to 20% were people I've invested in. Mm -hmm. And the other 80% are people I would have loved to invest in or invested alongside if they're investors. So Twist, This Week in Startups, which I've been doing for 10 years, over 1,000 episodes now, is the top of the funnel. Uh, some people might call that a honeypot. It's a way for people to come and go, oh, wow, that guy's smart, because they have smart people on the podcast. And if you want to seem smart, a really great way to do it is surround yourself by smart people. <laughs> and if you ask a smart person like a very simple question and they answer it and you ask them a great follow-up question, people think, wow, that person's a great interviewer. Being a great interviewer is really just about asking short questions, listening to the answers, and asking the right follow-up question. It's really a very simple thing that people yeah. don't get right. Um, so after the podcast, we have a bunch of live events, Launch Festival, um, Scale, which teaches people how to grow, Launch Festival, which is a celebration of people starting companies. We have people mm -hmm. start companies there. Um, and then we have Founder University, which is for 60 people to come, and we spend two days with them. Uh, and we help them learn how to grow their company, raise money, and just give them feedback on their idea and talk mm -hmm. about what problems they're facing. That's the middle of the funnel, right? But still towards the top. Uh, we haven't invested any money in either of those. But as you go down that funnel, the number of people participating in it narrows, thus a funnel. So you have you know, millions of people listening to This Week in Startups and then thousands of people coming to the events. Then of the thousand people that come to the events, a hundred come to our accelerator. A conversation like 0.1%? Sure. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, if we have if we have a million people listen, if it was just a million people listening to podcasts, mm -hmm. it's, it's millions, obviously. Um, you know, 1% of a million would be 10,000 and a thousand would be 0.1 and 0.01 mm -hmm. would be a hundred. So 0.01% of podcast listeners, we give $100,000 to and they come to the accelerator. Of that group, we then take meaningful positions, uh, invest millions of dollars in half of those, mm -hmm. uh, sometimes two-thirds. And then of those, we take really large positions in you know, probably a quarter of those. So now you're down to um, you know, maybe five or six companies a year we try to put a million dollars or more into. Mm -hmm. Um, and a hundred, we put a hundred K into, and then there's a couple of people in between where we'll do our pro rata, which means keep our percentage ownership. So 200 K, 300 K. Um, and then that would be the equivalent. If you think about the stack I'm building, if recode or, uh, this week in tech or TechCrunch had live events and some of them do. Mm -hmm. And if those live events and those podcasts had an accelerator, like, Techstars or Y Combinator. So if you combined TechCrunch, Y Combinator, or Techstars with a syndicate like AngelList and a seed fund like Homebrew or Founders Fund. Yeah, or Cowboy Ventures, that's what we built. 
So imagine if AngelList owned TechCrunch or Y Combinator owned TechCrunch and Y and AngelList. Yeah, it's both of combined. Putting four different products together. Now the product after that would be a Series A level fund, like a two hundred million dollar mm-hmm. fund, and the after that would be a growth fund of five hundred million. I don't need those two other products. I think to be the greatest investor in the history of Silicon Valley. Um, I think I can do it with just the products we have. Mm-hmm. But we started. You know, we've done two. Three deals now in the two point five million dollar range, uh, you know, which is you know like participate co-leading a Series A. Um, so we've done it, yeah, and we'll continue to do it. I so, love it. Yeah. Okay. I think you know if you look at where power resides here in Silicon Valley, I think the people who helped the startup early on, um, Series A and before, there's a special place uh, with those investors in terms of their relationships with the founders because they're so early, um, and then the people who can write the biggest checks later. I have a big seat at the table, whether it's Masayoshi-san, the public markets, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, um, uh, previously Yuri Milner putting in mm-hmm. large checks. So the large check writers um, have a lot of power, and the small check writers have a lot of power. The people in the middle are ATMs. <laughs> They're just financial transactions as far as I'm concerned. You know, Series B firms, Series C firms, Series D firms. A lot of those deals just get made based on price. So yeah. people are just comparing term sheets. So the, the, that function in the middle is very um, uh, mechanical. If you're going to do a Series C, you might have 10 people offer. You look at the pricing. One of them has a liquidation preference, but a you know, higher valuation. Another one has a lower valuation without the liquidation preference. You know, it's all these different rules to kind of get you to the same place. Great. Yeah. So can you tell me three startups – that you think they are under the radar, but they'll be huge one day? Wow, only three. <clears throat> well, I previously would have said Robinhood and, Ka- and um, Calm. Calm. You know, we were sitting here three or four years ago, but now everybody knows about those, and they mm-hmm. have gone on and changed the world. Um, right now, I am a big fan of what Blockable is doing, um, Cafe X is doing, and Neighborly, to name a few, mm-hmm. uh, and Fitbod. Those four um, really are doing well. I think they're very hard categories, and I like the hard ones. Um, Blockable, B-L-O-K-A-B-L-E.com. Blockable is building modular housing in factories. Not prefab houses, but modular. What's the difference? A prefab house, they give you a bunch of parts, and like Ikea, you set it up. Mm -hmm. So just think like an Ikea cabinet, but a house. That's prefab. Um, prefabricated. And a lot of work happens in the field. Some work happens in the factory. Maybe it's 50-50. What Blockable is doing is 95% of the work in the factory, 5% in the field. So they finish the entire interior, the kitchen, the bathroom, everything. They use very uh, cutting-edge materials that can only be assembled in a factory because they require high-pressure water cutters or you know, lasers and fabrication machines that mm-hmm. are giant. And the benefit of that is they can work 24 hours a day, not worry about disturbing the neighbors with noise, not worrying about pulling permits, not worry about only working from 7 to 3 p.m., not worry about the rain, cold, water, et cetera, which means they can work 24 hours a day building housing in a factory. The same way Tesla can build cars 24 hours a day. You wouldn't expect a Tesla to show up in a kit at your door and have you put it together or have a technician come out and put it together in your driveway. Those cars do exist. They're called kit cars. 
And I've never met anybody who built one, but they do exist in the world. If you want to buy like a, build a Shelby Cobra or something, you can buy the kit. There are kit airplanes. I don't recommend them. You may not want to put your own airplane together, but hobbyists in the 50s and 60s, that's exactly how they would build their cars. They would have kit cars and they would have kit airplanes uh, in Southern California. Uh, Dangerous pursuit for sure. Um, So yeah, the blockable then can also stack them. So you can stack them three, four, five stories high. And so they should be able to take construction down by greater than 50% of the time Mm -hmm. at the same cost or slightly less with housing that lasts five or 10 times longer than typical housing. Because you're using new materials, the house doesn't uh, fall apart. And because you're doing everything with lasers and perfectly cutting them and having perfect conditions to assemble them with a really high-end staff of you know construction workers who are selected to work in a factory, um, the precision is great, much higher. Therefore, they use 90% less energy. So they're 10 times more energy efficient mm-hmm. because it's sealed perfectly. So when you go inside of these things, they're sealed so perfectly that they're bizarrely quiet. And the air circulation is perfect. So you have to make sure you're turning on the air circulation because none's leaking, um, which is great because then the two greatest challenges with multifamily housing mm-hmm. with multi-units is fires and floods. Those are the two things that destroy properties. Biggest insurance claims. These blockable units are fireproof and floodproof, essentially, uh, reasonably. Uh, we can't make super claims here. Um, do your own research. But essentially, if you had a couch go on fire and you hosed it down inside one unit, the units around it would not be impacted because the floor has a drain and they're sealed, so the smoke shouldn't get into the other units. Pretty crazy, right? Yeah. So what I like about this investment is it's crazy. Like Uber was crazy. Robin was crazy. Com was crazy. It's just crazy and out there. Like the chances of success are low, Mm -hmm. but if it does win, the return is high. Yeah. For society and for the investors. Like it's not 10x, 100x. It will be like... 1,000x. Yeah. Uh, It could be 1,000x, 500, 1,000, 5,000. Uber was 5,000x for the seed investors. Four, five, six thousand. 6,000. Yeah. So depending on when you sold. So yeah. Great. So... I think you mentioned some of those in your book, but for you, is there any skills or specialties you think that the best founders are having and not many investors are aware of it? Well, you know, there's a large group of investors and they have different philosophies of what to invest Mm -hmm. in. Some people just want to invest in Stanford students. Uh, and PhDs and de- some places like Y Combinator focused on, you know, developer founders. Mm-hmm. Um, some Sandhill Road is where it is because it's proximity to Stanford um, and the research there and the and the business school there. So people have different philosophies and what they say and what they actually do might be very different. So investors might say they're looking for certain types of investments, but if you study what they actually invested in, it would be different. So some investors say, I'm stage agnostic. I'll invest in any great opportunity. But then if you look at their last 10 investments, they were all 250 to 500K checks in seed stage startups, pre-Series A, post the product being launched. Or they did 10 Series A's for 3 to 10 million and no Series B's and C's and they didn't and no seed investments. But they say, I'm stage agnostic. I will look at everything. So they're saying to the market, I'm stage agnostic, mm-hmm. when in fact they're not. So why would they do that? Are deal they, flows. What's that? Deal flows. 
deal flow. Exactly. They're doing it because they want to see everything and it doesn't cost them anything. But if they told you we don't invest in series B and we don't invest mm-hmm. in seed, we only do series A, then you'd be like, well, why am I wasting my time? So they stay there, stage agnostic. So they leave out there that they may. So I, I always encourage the founders we're working with is to study the behavior of the investor, not what they say, but what they've done. It's a better predictor. And I think that's wise for, to your original question, for investors as well. What has the founder done? And in my early days as an investor, I got snowed a lot because I would listen to what the founder said as opposed to looking at what they've done or looking at what they're doing. These are two very separate things. Yeah. And so if you were to study me and you said before, like how, you know, your dream or your goal is to be the greatest investor in the history of Silicon Valley. Well, I can say I want to do that. Anybody can say that. But the reason that has caught people's attention is because of what I've done and because of what I'm doing. And it seems less crazy when you look at what I'm doing and what I'm architecting. More predictable. That I, it's more credible, it's more predictable, that I might actually become the greatest investor in the history of Silicon Valley. Because Paul Graham has a chance to do that, except he retired. Um, but Y Combinator could, in fact, like Sequoia or Kosla or Bill Gurley, like if if Bill Gurley keeps investing, he will be the greatest investor of the history of Silicon Valley if he, if he can do it for another 10 or 20 years. Who knows if he wants to? Paul Graham tapped out. He let other people run Y Combinator. Mm-hmm. So does he get credit for it? I don't know. But it's his legacy. Sequoia, you know, you can't argue with their track record. So I always look at what people are doing. Um, and for me, that speaks with the founders. If you just look at what they're doing, mm-hmm. are they going and speaking at conferences or are they talking to their customers? Is their product releasing new updates? Mm-hmm. Are they closing new clients? Are those new clients using the product? Are those new clients using the product and increasing the number of people in their organization using the product? Are they raising their prices? Are they sending updates um, to their investors? Just look at the behavior. That's what matters. Yeah. And then we can talk about what people are saying. So that's what I encourage new investors to do is, you know, founders self-select for influence and their charisma. They're very charismatic people. They're able to talk people into doing things. That's the nature of being a great entrepreneur is that you can convince people to come with you on the journey, to invest in it, to come work for you, to try your product. Charisma is one of the the key traits. Therefore, when you're talking to them as an investor or as an employee, you've got to realize, okay, in all likelihood, this person is a standard deviation or two over on the charisma scale. Mm -hmm. So uh, now when a founder is charismatic, when they're telling me their story, I'm just like, you're supposed to be that. It doesn't affect me. Sort of like, Trying to do a Jedi mm-hmm. mind trick, like doesn't work on another Jedi, does it? Yeah. Another, Je- you don't know what I'm talking about. You see the Star Wars films? No, I'm not a big fan. Okay. There's a thing called Jedi's. Uh huh. They have lightsabers, the glowing yeah. swords. One of the things they can do is, for a feeble-minded person or an average person, they can say, "These are not the droids you're looking for." And a stormtrooper will go, "These are not the, the droids we're looking for." You will let us pass, and they go, "We'll let you pass." <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. You're going to have founders convince you to invest or convince you to come work for them. And the best way to determine if you should make that investment of your time as an employee, uh, the opportunity cost as an employee or team member, or as an investor is what they do. 
their actual behavior, what they've done. True. You are what you do. So are you planning to write a new book? Yeah, three. Are you now writing? I started writing in earnest yesterday. Yesterday? I decided I'm going to do a thousand words a day, six days a week. Thousand words a day? Six days a week. Six days a week. 60, that means I need 60 days. 60 days. 65. Right. So books are typically 60, 70,000 words. What is it about? I have three book ideas. Can't say any of them. Can't say? Nope. But the first book was about investors. The next book's mm -hmm. about founders. So just general categories. About founders. Founders. The other side of the table. So you What's know, the third? What's that? What's the third? Well, um, I was thinking about doing one on parenting. Mm -hmm. and maybe doing one on gambling. So. Gambling. Gambling will be really great. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I would have to do more research on the gambling mm -hmm. side. Um, you know, when I write about founders or investing, um, I'm kind of in the thick of that. And parenting, I'd have to wait 10 years because see how my kids turn out and, <laughs> you know, what kind of adults they become. But I think when I'm 70 in another 21 years, I would like to write a book on parenting, see how mm -hmm. I did. Yeah. yeah. Let's see if it goes. Yeah. Exactly. All right. That was a great chat, Jason. Thank for Thanks joining me. Thanks for having me. me on your pod. Sure. I hope all the best for you. I Thank you. hope you became the greatest investor of this history of Silicon Valley. I do too. I feel in art. I don't know why. Like I'm a big fan. Has that. Thanks, bro. <laughs> well, if I can become Mount Rushmore, even if I sneak my way onto Mount Rushmore, you know, top four. Uh-huh. You know what Mount Rushmore is, right? In America, the it's got the picture of the presidents mm -hmm. on it. So if I could become top four, that would be meaningful too. Yeah. Great. Or right. I'm going for number one. You'll be. We'll see. We'll see. A lot more work to do. All right. The number one thing I have to do is keep coming to work. Yep. I wake up every day and say, don't retire. Keep and working. Keep finding those gems. You have to find some meaning in what you do every day because if you get good at whatever you do, the danger is there's no reason to go to work anymore. So you see these great directors or actors or musicians. Retiring. And they make too much money and they retire and they don't go to work anymore or they just rest on their laurels because they're like well i can always do a concert so i can go on tour anytime i want i can if you're a comedian you can just go do a movie or go do a you know tour and yeah all right okay um this is the end of the four and five stories you can follow jason on twitter at jason and you might you want to spell that uh, it is J-A-S-O-N. Got it. Okay. On Twitter. And <laughs> I, if you think you are working on something that Jason will be interested, you can email him at jason at calcanis.com. You gave away my email? Sorry about oh, that. Oh, wait a second. It's on my uh, yeah, it's, Twitter it's handle. Twitter handle. It's my Twitter <laughs> handle. <laughs> All right. Thanks for watching and see you on the next episode.